I'm Faz Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Every Thursday, we try to answer the questions about politics you didn't even know you should be asking. This week, our question is, what can Democrats learn from Frank Luntz, a top Republican pollster? If you're not familiar with Frank Luntz, he's a legendary Republican pollster, as Faz said. He's a pundit. He's a political consultant. You've probably seen him in the news lately for running focus groups on TV. A lot of his work is around the use of language in politics. For example, he famously advised George W. Bush to say climate change instead of global warming. He advocated for using the term death tax instead of a state tax, that kind of thing. Yeah, and in recent years, Frank has evolved from a dyed-in-the-wool Republican partisan into a Trump skeptic. Uh, I think Donald Trump actually called him a slob at one point. However, he apparently still worked with the administration. For example, according to Politico, he advised then-White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney that instead of saying the words, quote-unquote, fund the border wall, they should talk about border security. We invited Frank on because we wanted to talk a little bit about COVID hesitancy and around Republican men being afraid to get the vaccine or unsure about getting the vaccine. We wanted to talk about the state of the Republican Party and to genuinely reflect on the changing attitudes of American voters. You know, we wanted to hear from people who don't always agree with us. And it was a hot mess of an interview. Uh, So let's listen to it and we'll stick around afterwards to discuss it. Frank Lentz, welcome to Battleground. We're so glad to have you. It's a privilege to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, We have had a number of guests who are of my political persuasion and probably see the world like I do. And I think with you, I think we're going to have an opportunity to have some differences as well as agreements. And I welcome you throughout the course of this conversation to be honest and candid and have respectful disagreement to the extent that we may have that. Frank, I'm going to start off with a general question. One of the things you know well are voters in America. You've been polling and focus grouping them for years. There's a conundrum that many of us often deal with in the progressive circles. So I'd like you to kind of break it down for me. On the one hand, you have tribal partisan polarization in America. People are voting party line. And then yet, when you get into ideology, Frank, you look at like minimum wage, bipartisan support, Medicaid expansion, bipartisan support, criminal justice reform, immigration reform, even wealth tax. You know, you could go down a whole set of issues and they tend to lean progressive on many ideological issues. Can you try to unpack that for me? What is going on with the polarization of identity on partisan terms and yet seemingly progressive ideology on issues? And yet I remember for decades, The American people, a majority of them, supported a more conservative approach. Less government, less Washington, lower taxes, more freedom. And so it really does depend on what issues you choose to address, and it does depend on how they are framed. And this is something that you and I know very well, that depending on the context by which it's communicated, that determines where the public stands. Now, make no mistake, there is a greater degree of hostility towards corporate America. There's a greater support for the plight of immigrants. There is less support for keeping taxes down, more support for spending more on programs right now because of COVID. There has been a shift, but not as great as you might suggest and not as great as the progressives might believe. Clearly, there is a bigger government, bigger taxes, more regulations, is higher today in in public support than it was 10 years ago. Unfortunately, you have politicians on both sides that seek to stoke the flames of difference. 
that instead of trying to reach common ground, they actually seek to put one group against each other because they believe that this will give you maybe 55% support on one side, 45% on the other. And frankly, they don't care about the other. And it's one of the reasons why I've taken a step back. It's one of the reasons why I'm much more careful about what I say, about what I do, who I work for, that there are areas right now, and I can't tell you exactly how, but there are areas where I'm involved with people who you'd be surprised about. And I wish that there were areas and people that you were involved with that would surprise your allies, that we need to do a better job of seeking out those where we can reach common ground and actually step across those divisions, not across the aisle, but across the division. I mentor African-Americans, both in Washington, D.C. and in Los Angeles. And I seek to understand those who I didn't grow up with and did not fully understand. It has changed my politics. It has changed my overall global outlook. And I embrace it. I love it. And a lot of my life I spend either apologizing for people I've worked for or things that I've done in the past because I know more now. I never did it out of anger. I never did it out of division, but I took positions that I would not take right now. And I'm doing that because of the people that I hang out with. And it would be so much better for this country if we chose our friends, not because they agree with us, but because they enlighten us, just as we should choose our news to inform us rather than affirm us. And because we don't do either, I think the worst is yet to come, quite frankly. Well, let's stipulate I am actually sincerely interested in finding common ground. And I really think about issues like raising the minimum wage as things that could get it done. I even think of many criminal justice reform elements. And then yet I look at partners on the right, who potential partners, and I'll say this, you know, with all due respect, concerns over unwillingness to concede the election to Joe Biden, shrugging at best at insurrection of the Capitol building. And you're looking at like, well, where could you find quote unquote, common ground. What's your advice to us, Frank, of those who disagree with our friends on the right on such vehement issues here? How do you then break through when on seemingly simple things that we could find agreement on, we can't even acknowledge the victor, we can't acknowledge that what happened on the Capitol grounds was heinous and reprehensible? You're absolutely correct. But you do so not by looking for those differences, but by finding the similarities. I'm going to give you a specific example. I actually have trouble and we'll see what happens when this goes out, because I'm sure that some people will jump me for it. But I used to believe that the American dream was available to everyone. If you worked hard and played by the rules, you had a chance for success. And I realized that that's not necessarily the case, that there are communities in our inner cities with broken families and dangerous neighborhoods and schools that do not teach and teachers that cannot provide the knowledge that these young people need and that they really don't have a chance at the American dream because they don't even know what the American dream is. It's just not available to them. And I think that the one area where we should be able to find common ground, and we have to, is in education, is the fact that if you deny people of the black and brown community, if you deny them the skills and the talents that they need to succeed, no checks, no reparations, no financial commitment will help them achieve that American dream if they simply have not been taught to read and write and add and subtract. And I go into those schools. I teach, uh, teach for America. And I used to come out, oh God, okay. I used to come out of those classes crying 
and I, I, I can see the memes now. They're going to abuse the hell out of me. But you know what? It's fucking wrong that they're in these classes, that this is the great equalizer and we don't do enough for them, that we abide by people whose first objective is for the adults in the classroom and not for the kids, that we're unwilling to fight for those kids, that we're unwilling to make a difference in their lives. And I've been working on this now for 20 years and I have failed miserably. But I know that they're not getting the chance that they deserve. I know that they're not getting the skills that they need. And I know that their lives are going to suck. And you and I together, because you've got a big heart, and we start from completely opposite ends of the spectrum. But if you got a heart and you got a conscience and you got a commitment, how can we just write them a check when we're not giving them the skills and talents they need to write their own checks, to write their own future. We are fucking them up, and it is a disgrace. And you and I should agree on that. We should agree on that in, a, in, in the core, who we are. Frank, one, it's very nice to meet you. I'm not sure we've ever interacted before. So apologize that we don't have the friendship that you and Faz are working off of here. But I can't help but be taken aback a little bit by the way you're approaching this as if it is a problem that both Democrats and Republicans are struggling with, as if there is two equal good faith actors in the political process. We have reached a point where the Republican Party, at least the elected officials in the Republican Party, are not good faith negotiators in legislating. They're not good faith negotiators in governing. There is no proof that they want good outcomes for most Americans. And I have to say, I, I read your work in college. I've watched your work first. You do bear some responsibility for that, right? Of having amusing. taught these people how to communicate. It's amusing to me that we're talking about kids. We're talking about something real, not politics, which is so much actors and it's a stage. High school is not a stage. High school is real life. Junior high is real life. And you immediately go to the political differences. And I'm trying to address what is a core barrier to success for the future. You, you cannot, you will not, you, I'll tell you right now, you'll not succeed. I'll do anything you want me to do in politics if you will help me fix the schools. But, you're, but it's not happening. And that is the solution. It's not a talking point. It's not some sort of phrase that I came up with. Our schools suck and we have to do more. I teach at Verbum Day. I'm on the board now. And I really don't, it's probably the best thing that I do in life. And I go through an absolute mind-blowing experience when these kids get into decent schools and they cannot afford to go. I don't want any bullshit about climate change versus global warming or death tax versus estate tax. That's all meaningless. What is meaningful is that these kids are trying to get a good education so they can go back into their communities and make a difference. Join me, fly out to California, participate in my classes, make a commitment to actually teach them. That's what really matters. Sure, but the only way we get those better outcomes for students is if we have two parties who are willing to govern together. Like, 
you know this, politics is both an abstraction of theater, but is also directly consequential to people's lives and part of the polarization of climate change versus global warming or gun safety or any of the other things, you know, death tax versus estate tax helped cultivate an environment where we can't come to basic agreements on things like education or minimum wage because the parties are so far apart that even in the things we agree upon, we can't find a meaningful you know, alignment. Frank, just to add on to Amanda, like we just passed an American relief plan that included money for education, right? And like literally opening schools, making sure that they have more teachers, literally changing the environments in these schools, giving them the ability to have plastic dividers, all kinds of things, upgrades for schools. Was there any Republican support for it, right? Did you hear people talking about that? You're going to throw more money at this. And I'm working with a number of organizations who are allies of you guys, clear allies who are saying, oh my God, all we've done is throw money at it without any essence of accountability, without any idea of reforms, without any sense of how we're going to measure success. And we've done this for decades. It's not writing them a check. That's probably the difference between you and me, is that you believe that it's the effort that matters. And I don't. I believe it's the results that matter. And that's where I take, that's where I take responsibility. Because really, it's, it is not about the language that I create. It's about what actually happens on the ground. And it's not happening for these students at Burbham Day. It's not happening in the public schools in New York, Philadelphia, right here in Washington, D.C. And I just, it breaks my heart because we're about, we're promising them a better society. But they can't even read the damn diplomas that they're getting. They can't work out a tip. I don't want them working minimum wage, which you keep focusing on. I want them to have the chance to do finance. I want them to have a chance to own their own business. And they, they are not even taught money management. We know, and we've known for decades that we're failing them. And over the last 15 years, it cannot be more obvious. And here's the most frightening thing of all. The last time that we had measurements of this, which is 2019, the racial gap between white, black, and Latino students has never been higher. Oh, geez, you had Barack Obama for eight years. What the hell did he do to address it? The answer, nothing. He had a great secretary of education in Arnie Duncan, an innovator, courageous, and he was beaten down and beaten down and beaten down by the teachers' unions. Who you guys say, oh, they're great, they're wonderful. We are creating a segment of society that is going to be permanently resentful with a lot to be resentful of. You want to pin it on politics, and I pin it on what's happening in, in when they're five years old and six years old and eight years old and 10 years old. We have failed them, and we're going to continue to fail well them. <laughs> You did just blame it on politics, though. You just blamed Barack Obama, which I, I don't necessarily agree with, but you did just blame the outcomes of these students on politics, which is a system that you helped create. Stop doing politics. You did I politics, the, respectfully. I, I asked the question. You're going to keep going back to it, and I'm going to keep going back to the students. And what's going to actually help them more, your focus on politics or my focus on the classroom? You can feel good that you're making an effort, but you're not going to have the results you need. I want these kids to be able to present in a classroom. I want them to be able to present at work. I want them to have careers, not jobs. 
I want them to have to own their own businesses, not work for somebody else. I want them to be able to achieve their dreams. And that is not happening right now. And so once again, and I will keep going back to it, help me or have me help you. But it's going to require accountability. It's going to require measurements. It's going to require standards, which I know that that my conservative friends are against. It's going to require testing that those on the left are somewhat against. These kids deserve a voice. Are you going to give it to them? I'm afraid you're going to just keep on talking about politics and they're going to be forgotten. And then we're going to create another year and another year and another year and another year of failure. Frank, so just talk, I, you go ahead, please. Anna. I know Faz wants to ask one, uh, change topics a little bit, but I do just want to point out everything you're talking about is politics. And if we're not engaging in politics, there's no way we're going to get those better outcomes. We have to take a break, but we'll be right back with Frank Lutz. We're back with Frank Luntz. Let's get into your expertise, which is understanding voters in America and the state of conservative voters. So we, I, quite frankly, both Amanda and I don't track it as closely as you do. Give me a state of where conservative voters are with respect to the Republican Party right now. Like, What is the Republican Party? Oh, I can't answer that question. If you actually look at my interviews, I don't know where we are. I don't know where we're going. Donald Trump clearly has considerable sway. I would argue that about 40% of the Republican Party is Trump's party. About 20% is anti-Trump, and the other 40% don't know which way they're going to go, that they like where he stood for. They don't like what he said. They like many of his policies. They don't like his behavior or his commentary. Uh, And I think the Republican Party is very troubled right now. And I've been doing focus groups with people who are disillusioned, who are former Republicans believe in fiscal responsibility, believe that deficits and debt matters, believe that people should get to keep a greater percentage of their hard-earned income, and wonder what has happened to a party that spent more in four years in some areas than the Democrats spent in eight. And I wish I could answer that question more clearly. I can't. And it is very disillusioning for me. And it's one of the reasons why I am much less partisan today than I was, say, 20 years ago. I really do believe we have to find common ground. I really do believe we have to look for solutions. And I don't see those solutions in the Democratic Party, which is why I don't join them. But I don't think any party or any ideology has a monopoly on the truth. I wish that conservatives, I'll say this, and Newt Gingrich would kill me for this, but I wish that conservatives had a bigger heart and I wish that progressives had a bigger head. And I wish that we could somehow find a combination of both. You say that you don't think any ideology or party has ownership over the solutions and that Democrats don't have it. Do you think that there is any part of the modern Republican Party that has a positive vision for what they want this country to be? I think they're much too negative. I think they define themselves by what they are against rather than what they are for. I think there are individuals within the Republican Party who are awesome. The gentleman who's going to deliver the State of Union response, Tim Scott. He's an example of someone who's got a heart that's bigger than the room I'm in right now, who sees things from a a values perspective, who has empathy and sympathy for those who, through no fault of their own, no responsibility of their own, for whatever reason, have been held back. I think that Tim Scott is, and I hope that he takes a more national perspective, a more national role within the GOP. That said, so much of the messaging 
is negative. So much of the response is simply anti-Biden. And that's what you do when you're in opposition, as the Republicans are. But that's not what you do to provide solutions for the country. And unfortunately, the last four years were way too much about negativity and not enough about hope and not enough about a day-to-day difference in people's lives. And one last thing, we did achieve the lowest unemployment rate in modern times, and not just among the population overall, but within the Black community, within the Latino community, within those 18 to 29. It was incredible how strong our economy was. And, And I don't forget that. And I believe that the taxes played a role in that. I believe the regulatory changes played a role in that. And that when you got an unemployment down to 3.5%, everyone is benefiting from it, not just the rich and the well-connected. Frank, you've been doing these focus groups with vaccine deniers or hesitants. They are, let's say, I'm going to put some numbers out there, but maybe like 20% of the public, maybe larger percentage of the Republican Party than Democratic Party. Maybe it's like 40% if you would agree to that, something like that. And I see that number of people who are hesitant. I see a lot of Trump supporters in there. My own views about this group, and I welcome your input on it, I see them as leading the Republican Party. A lot of Tea Party-related folks from years ago, people who raised concerns about Obama's validity as president. I see a similar overlapping group of people who I find it harder to find the common ground with that we have been discussing. What am I getting wrong about this? How do we deal with a group that I believe is actually tending to lead the Republican Party right now, the vaccine deniers who have a lot of ideological views that I find it harder to negotiate with? Well, the leading vaccine denier in America is Bobby Kennedy Jr. And the last time I looked, he never supported a single Republican ever. And Bobby Kennedy has been leading this vaccine denial for every vaccine and putting a lot of people in jeopardy. I like him. I, I've, I've probably been with him a dozen times, and as a human being, I appreciate him and I respect him. But if you're going to say that it's the Republican vaccine deniers, start with the top one because he's a hardcore Democrat. But you think a lot of Republicans are following him and listening to him? Uh, they're not listening to him. They're following their own direction. And I'll give you a couple numbers. It's 5% of the Biden vote will never ever get a COVID vaccine and 13% of the Trump vote will never get a COVID vaccine. So you're correct, it's more Republican than Democrat. But a gentleman who you should talk to, Tristan Harris, I just had him speak to my students within the last 24 hours. And he talked about the problem with cable news, the problem with talk radio, the problem with social media, is that we are getting our information from increasingly narrow sources. So we are likely to overestimate and to pay greater attention to those on the extreme of the other side than we are at those in the center. So to you, it may sound like they're running the Republican Party because if you're getting your news from MSNBC or CNN, you're getting your news from the left. If others are getting their news from Fox and Newsmax, they're getting their news from the right. And it tends to exaggerate the role of those on the opposite side and the more extreme elements of the opposite side. I think that we need to give a microphone and a voice to those who seek common ground. We need to pay as much attention to Joe Manchin as we do AOC. 
that we need to celebrate Susan Collins as much as we demonize Ted Cruz, because Susan Collins does represent an important voice, as does Joe Manchin. Frank, as a closing note, I appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation with us. I'd ask you just to, you've been in this game of politics for a long period of time. You've worked in it. You've seen a lot. I'd wonder if you just give us some personal reflections on your own evolutions and imparting of wisdom to people about what you have learned, how you have also seen and experienced things that have caused you to reflect and change as wisdom for a next generation. Uh, Sure. And it's probably the reason why I'm so involved in COVID right now. I had a stroke on the 10th of January of 2020. You're aware of this because you came into my class. I was actually in the hospital for five nights. They would not let me out. And my students are all up there. And I have the responsibility to teach them. And I'm on a gosh darn hospital bed. And we actually had a a lecture on Obamacare, on the Affordable Care Act in the hospital, in the ICU, because I said to them, I'm checking myself out and I don't care if I go down, I don't care if I blow my head, I'm going to teach. And you were gracious enough to come in and speak to them. And it was only over the last few days because uh, I'm still challenged that I realized that I think one of the reasons why my head finally exploded, literally, is because I was so upset by what was happening, the language that was being used, what was coming out of the White House, and I was unwilling to talk about it. I was unwilling to be more public about it. Of all the people who are in my profession from a pseudo-Republican side, because I've been much less partisan simply because I'm a pollster, so I need to be accurate, but I should have said more and I should have done more. And as much as I started to do it, to the point where I wasn't welcome in the White House, to the point where I never saw the president for the last year of his administration. I wish I'd done more. And I say this to everyone who's listening, that is the worst regret to have. If you actually make yourself sick by being unwilling to speak up or speak out, then that's no way to live. It is far better to suffer the consequences of speaking out than it is to be silent because this uh, stroke that I had is with me now, and it'll be with me forever. And just maybe if I had said a little more, done a little more, I'd be a little more healthy than I am right now. So that's my lesson to those listening. Don't remain quiet, but don't assume you have all the answers either. The greatest liberation for me is the ability to say, I got it wrong. On climate, I got it wrong. On the American dream, I got it wrong. I, in my time, over the last 10 years, I've learned so much, and I try to teach this to my students, and I would say it to the both of you. The most liberating thing in life is to acknowledge publicly that you made a mistake. Don't be so sure, no matter how determined and passionate you are, don't be so sure that you've got all the right answers, because at some point in your life, you're going to realize that you were wrong, and your ability to admit that, and your ability to change and your ability to grow and learn and then apply those lessons is the greatest ability of all. It's why we were put on this planet to be able to do good things for good people. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us, Frank. We appreciate it. I just left you guys in silence. Uh, (laughs) Well, it was an important note, Frank. I mean, you know, it's hard to respond to 
a very deep reflection that is genuine. I know that Trump actually publicly derided you and probably made your life pretty damn difficult for periods, but it's also hard for me to sit in your shoes and to think and operate that way. So I also, on the one hand, I, I have a lot of empathy for the challenges that you've gone through. I also find it difficult to even kind of contemplate making some of the decisions that led to that point. Well, uh, hopefully I'm a better human being today than I was even 12 months ago. But thank you guys for, uh, of course. for hosting me here. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Good to talk to you. So that was quite an interview. Uh, we're going to take a short break here. And when we come back, Amanda and I are going to digest and discuss this interview more at length. Welcome back to Battleground. I really, I want to have a rational, thoughtful conversation on the merits. And I feel like you and I, for for trying to have an honest conversation, are getting trolled about schools and about Obama. And I mean, he lost me a little bit when I was like, I've learned how to have a conscience by mentoring young Black students. Like, nah. But truly, everything is politics. And everything is politics because of the work he has done for decades to actively politicize every single disagreement that we as a country are having and to like refuse to take any responsibility or admit the premise of that. He was so full of shit. And on the one hand, I respect the game. What a smart strategic communicator, but don't try to fucking strategic communicate to me. I I see what you are doing. I mean, I was hoping that it could break out of a Fox News segment, but it kind of devolved there. But I really was wanting a really thoughtful assessment of voters from his perspective. But instead, it felt like I was getting a version of a Republican pollster who has to do business with a bunch of Republicans who's going to feed us the lines of like, well, you know, this is why Obama stinks. And this, I'm like, if you want to talk common ground, you could lead the way. I mean, he literally has a platform and a power. You could lead the way and model the kind of behavior that you want to engage in. Instead, it felt like he's trolling us. Like the idea that it is on both parties to play some kind of form of compromise when the reality is that Republican elected officials have said they're uninterested in compromise, they're uninterested in working with Democrats, there is no shared common ground. Even on the issues they agree with, they do not agree with the act of legislating on them. So whose responsibility is it to compromise here? One of the big takeaways I I gather from this... (laughs) Wonderful interview with Frank Luntz, who's a very thoughtful, he's like a thoughtful, smart, brilliant person in his own right. Yeah. That's the thing about him. He's like very brilliant, obviously has a huge impact in the world with a lot of his work. And you listen to this and you come away with the state of the Republican Party, really in shambles. You could not get any ideology, any cohesiveness and clarity over what we care about, what we're fighting for. And instead, it really kind of was reactive in many ways. It was just, we ask you a question, boom, let me punch back with finding a weakness. I'm going to push you on schools and why you didn't do enough there. I'm going to push you on this thing and that thing. And it was all so reactive. And we're having a conversation with in some sense, a symbolic Republican party Mm -hmm. that cannot have a discussion on the merits that when we are trying to have a discussion on the merits devolves into some kind of mockery or some of the ways he reacted to you, Amanda, in the earliest questions. I was like, what kind of reaction was that? She's just asking you a basic question. 
that is the Republican Party's reaction to women trying to challenge them. Touché. And I like I don't want to give this guy too much power, but as one of the leading messaging strategists for the Republican Party for the last 20 or 30 years, or more than that, he, he is responsible for the story that the Republican Party has been telling. This is an important point that you're raising, Amanda, because at the outset of our interview, he talks about finding common ground, mm-hmm. the divisiveness of this country. So oh. so difficult. We just need to find common ground, Amanda. And if you look at really his life's work has been to move Republicans into trench warfare on these issues by giving them the ammo to say, hey, this is too popular. Knock this one down to a 50-50 fight. It was so hard not to jump in and interrupt and like really start screaming. But that's not the way to have a productive conversation, nor is that enjoyable to listen to. But please know that we both wanted to. Yeah, I feel that. And I, I will take uh, <laughs> I'll take my due responsibility for wanting this kind of a conversation. And honestly, I find it interesting and important to try to get to some degree of understanding of how the other half thinks and what do they believe? What governs them? Not that you'll ever unpack it and totally, truly rationalize it, but I'd like to at least try. And in Frank, you know, somebody who I've known for a bit, I was like, well, let's see how this will go with no expectations of how it might go. And it was disappointing, Amanda, because I was hoping to find a way to have a real discourse. Well, and I think this is where we get at a bigger problem with the modern Republican Party is because they don't really have a platform anymore. They don't really have policy positions. They just have rage and some sort of victimization and grievance. It's really hard to start at a place where we can actually like disagree about how to best help working families because there is no there is no even agreement that we should. Yes. In a weird way, he's very idealistic. Do you get that sense of like he has a vision of what he thinks politics could be, and it is extremely disconnected from reality, but it is a sense, a vision. Well, it's hard with the pollster too, that you're always aware that they are cognizant, probably even more so than you and me, of what is popular to say. I think there's a reason that he pushes right at the top of the interview into schools, Mm -hmm. right? And we're trying to have like an honest conversation. You remember, like, we're just asking like the conundrum of tribal identity on partisan terms and ideological, generally support for progressive issues in this country. If you look at ballot measures, those that lean progressive tend to win with strong majorities, whether you're in Florida or you know, wherever you might be, they're, they're very strong. Even Missouri, you know, Medicaid. So how do you explain the conundrum? Oh, schools, let's talk about how Democrats have failed schools and this is the the issue of my life. And I'm like, it felt like right out the jump, he's trying to drive at popular ground for himself, right? And what would be ways to message that get him out of having to defend Republican positions or have an honest reflection about progressivism in this country and its its strength. And I wonder, you know, his pushback of like, you're trying to talk about politics, I'm trying to talk about schools is a psychological coping mechanism for trying to separate himself from his work in politics to the impact that it's had on people. Yes. Because like you and I both know part of the reason we work in politics is because it has consequences for everyday Americans. Yes. Because it directly matters. What happens in schools is not an accident. It is an outcome of an intentional political strategy. And if he needs to separate the two in order to wake up every day and look in the mirror, that's a reflection on him. But that is not the reality of the circumstances we are working in. And and to be clear, it's great. I love that, you know, giving back for anyone and everyone, people who agree with us, people who disagree with us, great. Be a mentor for young people. That's fantastic. 
it's just the manner in which he wanted to have that conversation was you guys <laughs> don't <laughs> understand that you can't cut a check to low-income students. You got to focus on results, whatever, you know, the hell that means. I'm like, okay, we care about results. We also care that they get funding and resources in order to obtain those results, right? I mean, you, and like, you just, we couldn't even have that conversation. It was just like pointedly punchy and antagonistic. It was such bullshit. It was such bullshit. Better way to put it. <laughs> Thank you so much to Frank Luntz for joining us for a um, shit show of a conversation on this episode of Battleground. We are grateful to him for giving us the time, even if it didn't go exactly the way we thought it would. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 